before. Um, we just want to kind of pull it apart. So everybody had the notes for a week. Um, so if you have questions, feel free to holler. Um, but as we look at this, uh, um, we want to remind ourselves all divine revelation, special and general, is fulfilled and interpreted through Jesus Christ. So he is, uh, he is the one that ties it all together so that, so that it can make sense for us. So it says, but as for you, this is Paul writing to Timothy, right? Everybody tracking? As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So as Paul begins, he's telling Timothy, it's the scriptures, it's these these sacred writings, he's going to define them in a minute as all scripture, but as he's discussing it, the word here is graphe. It, it literally means the writings. So the idea is, look, you remember, remember, he says, um, how you have firmly believed and from whom you learned it. So for Timothy's life, we know as we look at the, the context in this particular chapter, he learned from who? His mother. His mother's grandmother. grandmother and then who else? <clears throat> be an obvious person that he learned from Paul. So, so probably he's so he's saying, look, remember who, remember them, you know the the models that they provide in their life. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, and what is it that they're able to do, which are able to make you wise for what? Doesn't say make you wise for science. Doesn't say make you wise for mathematics or anything else what's it say make you wise for what salvation. salvation so it brings salvation which is through faith in christ jesus so it's faith in the messiah jesus christ then the section that we want to look at all scripture grafe is uh theos nustos god breathed it is a hapex legamemnon you guys remember what apex legamemnon means? No clue. It means it is a word only used once. This is it. The only time this word is ever used in the Bible. Most people would say this word is created by Paul. The idea is not created by Paul. We can see the idea throughout Scripture. We, there's, there's a bunch of Scripture just in the notes that I gave you guys where, where we're looking at what does the Bible say about itself. So there's lots of places where the idea is Paul gives a word for to describe what we all see as God's words. He called it God breathed, literally. Uh, God breathed. So breathed out by God. All scripture breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction and training in righteousness. And we talked about this earlier, but when we talk about all scripture, what is it that Paul is referring to? The Old Testament. Specifically, contextually, it's what he's pointing to, right? At the time Paul writes this, New Testament is still being penned. Uh, so we'll use other scripture to point to New Testament writings as scripture, which will then mean this applies to how much scripture? All of it. So anything that can be considered scripture is God-breathed. So when we find when we go to other texts and the other texts point to New Testament writings as scripture, it puts it on par with the 
the scripture, which then uh, brings that application. So all scripture breathed out by God and is profitable. So all scripture is profitable. Not most of it, not some of it, all of it. So we, when we come to the scripture, we should expect the scripture has a variety of things to teach us about how to live lives obediently, right? It's profitable. It's useful. It's good for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. <coughs> for the purpose that the man of God would be complete, right? That word for complete also means mature. That the man of God grows up and is equipped for how many works? So is there ever a work we do we don't need the word? The word of God equips us for every good work. So the the authoritative nature of the word, specifically what we're going to be dealing with with this particular section of scripture, is talking about what's what does it mean to be inspired? What does inspiration mean? This, again, this is the only place this word's used. We, it becomes part of the definition of what we call the Word of God, right? I am a person who believes in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture. So verbal means the words, plenary means all of them. So I believe all the words are God-breathed. Uh, at the same time, the difficult nature of that definition is I'm also affirming that God used human beings. He used their words. He did not dictate his, but he got his words on the paper. Does that make sense? Whatever words were on the paper were the words God wanted on the paper. Whatever they wrote was what what God wanted. We'll define we'll try to define that a little bit more as we go. But that's really what we're working at with this scripture. The inspiration. The product of inspiration is the scripture. That's what we get. And that's what this is. That's what this scripture is dealing with for us. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, to do what? What are we supposed to do with this inspired word of God? after the world yeah preach the word <clears throat> right preach the word herald be ready in season and out of season so always ready always prepared whether or not your teaching doesn't make any difference at all whether or not it's on a schedule you should always have something ready that you're ready to share with somebody that's that's the charge of paul to timothy his son in the faith preach the word in season and out reprove Rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So we want to be, we want, we, and I think we want to attach that idea of complete to both words. Complete patience and complete teaching. And what I see in that is, Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you what? The whole counsel of God. Right? We don't need to be an expert in just wouldn't be a wasted life of course but we we need the whole counsel of God everything we we have to have the whole view and I think you should have a grasp on the whole view before you focus in on a part or we lose our sense of direction 
we're studying the tree, but we're lost in the forest. So we want to we want to be able to have that complete patience, complete teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. When do you think that's going to come? Already seeing it. Yeah, is it here now? So people who want to endure sound teaching. When he says, when Paul talks about sound teaching, I think he's specifically referring to the doctrine that has already been being espoused to the church through the apostles. When he talks about sound teaching, he's going to bring it up in other places where he says, you know, don't forget that those, the sound, the traditions we taught you, that sound doctrine that we gave you, those things that you want to hold fast to. So, you know, in the same way, I know sometimes there are people who say, I, I don't know if I want to study doctrine. All the word doctrine means is teaching. So it's the same thing. It's understanding the teaching and the church working her way through of the comprehension, just like we do. Just like, you do, like, like we just started in the beginning, we looked at Moses and the plagues and how does all this work and how does all this function. We need to say, we work that out. That's how that happens. That's how doctrine happens. We work it out, and then we go, oh, look there, look what we learned. And then we, you know, hold on to those doctrines, those rules that we that we learn as we study. Um, they'll have itching ears, and they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off to myths. So we see those things happening. So what guards us from wandering to myths? The Word. Word of God. So that's why I'm, that's my issues with Andy Stanley. You guys have heard me harp on him for a while. Uh, Kathy, I was I was looking for books on leadership, and I threw away all the leadership books I had because I didn't like them. Because the, the two examples of leadership books, and people will say, "Well, that's why your leadership sucks." That might be, but the two leadership books I had were not based on a word. Well, great. I don't need more of man's wisdom. I, you know, I can find a lot of that. I want to know, you know, I was looking for something that, that is utilizing Scripture as, you know, here's a scriptural model of uh, biblical leadership. And one of those happened to be a book by Andy Stanley. So, and the leadership model was more based on baseball than anything else. So, it's interesting. But, you know, I'm sure he sold 10,000 books and bought himself a new car. But the... But the end result is, when guys like that who are teaching, there are more than 30,000 people in his church because multi-campus churches, and from the podium, he has pronounced the, the reality that he doesn't believe you need the Bible. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in order to hold fast a sound doctrine, to not go away to miss... We need to, what was he exhorting Timothy to do? Remember the scriptures you were trained in. They're the things that keep you grounded. Don't throw those things away because fancy guys will come and say, well, the Bible's dumb. It says animals talked, and surely you don't believe animals talk. I heard the best answer to that I've ever heard in my life. I love Doug Wilson. And Doug Wilson was on a radio interview, and it was when Christopher Hitchens was still alive before Christopher Hitchens died. And they were talking, you know, they started with all these uh, uh, flatteries. Oh, you know, you're a smart guy, you know, and he's a smart guy. That guy, he's forgot more than I'll ever learn. So, but he's, you're a smart guy. Surely you don't believe. 
everything in the Bible. I mean, the Bible says animals talk. And without missing a beat, he said, we're animals, aren't we? And it, it was a mic drop. It was a gunk, you know, and there's there's that stumbling silence by everybody who thought, yeah, we got him backed into a corner. We got him. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're animals. And we talk, so... So anyways, I thought it was good. Was but why is it Doug Wilson? Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson, who's in Moscow, Idaho. One day I'm going to visit him. Or something. Drive by and wave or take a picture and say I was here. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I really I really appreciate his quick-wittedness. But the point is, if we're not anchored to the Word, and that's one of the things that Doug Wilson is. That's one of the things that Cy Tim Bruggenkate is. That's one of the things... That uh, James White is. That's one of the things that a lot of the guys that I that I look up to, uh, uh, even Mike Michael Heiser, although he may have a different view of inspiration than than I have, he still holds the authoritative nature of the Word of God, and this is what keeps us from error. And as soon as we pitch that, now we're resting on our own reason, which, as near as I can tell, according to the Bible, is part of our fallen nature. And I don't see any really good reason scripturally to trust in my own reason, right? Something about trusting the Lord with all my heart and lean not into my own understanding. But that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found where? In Christ Jesus. So staying anchored to him, you know, it's interesting because we can see that really in reality, guys, when we look at the... the Many of the gains, scientific gains that we experienced over the last couple of hundred years were experienced because Christian men uh, were asking questions and finding answers. And then that discipline threw away the knowledge of God. And yeah, I, don't know, I don't know that we'll find the things we're looking for, the answers we're looking for apart from that. Because I, I tend to agree with the concept that unless you start with God, then you can't really know anything. It's God that that reveals. And so for me and for us, I think that's holding fast to the authoritative nature of the Word of God. So, important ideas. One, the word God breathed only happens once. The idea, this is not the only place the idea is. Right? How many times does the Scripture say the Word of the Lord came to? The Word of the Lord came to. The Word of the Lord came to. 138 times. Yeah. 139 verses there. Or vice versa. Yeah. So when you look at it, when you, when we consider that, then you know that's it's not a new concept that what was being written and spoken came from whom had its origin where in God, right? Its origin is in God. So all Scripture breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It has its source in God through the Holy Spirit. Theos nustos. <clears throat> Uh, this is what constitutes the writings as holy. Now, again, I'm going to point probably more often to the self-authenticating nature of Scripture than than maybe a lot of other guys will, but I would say that the Scriptures will bear the mark of God's fingerprints or God's breath in them. And the ones that don't, aren't. If they're not Theos Nustos, they're not Scripture, they're not breathed out by God. However, they are not, their origin is divine, but they came through men. 
I'm not trying to say that coming through men means that they're full of errors. I'm saying that coming through men means they will also have the fingerprints of men. They will be written in genre, their style, there's grammar, there's good grammar and bad grammar. Because some of the guys you used were educated men who wrote scripture, and some of them were uneducated. They still put the words, got the message that God wanted across, but grammar has nothing to do with inerrancy. Poor grammar is just means that the human author was poor. God, the message God wanted from the donkey to Balaam, Balaam got right. Even though the in, the the sentence structure, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but it was whatever sentence structure a donkey could do. So we want to understand. We don't want to lose the reality that human authors are utilized. But what they did, what they wrote, was just as though the words were breathed out by God. That's the message that Paul's trying to get. The scriptures are the result of a process by which God used human authors' experiences, word choices, and intentions to accomplish his will. I did like what Charles Ryrie wrote, the act by which God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. So what they wrote still carried their personality. They would have used their slang. They would have used their language. And that's just a reality because that's what you see in, in the 66 books. You guys with me? When people read uh, Peter, they go, oh my gosh, not not great. Greek or grammar. When they read Paul, they go, oh, there we go. That's a little better. When they read John, they, they, they're fishermen. They weren't... <coughs> there was, you know, they have style. And their style still comes through. Um, so I have a couple of definitions here of inspiration. Inspiration is a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human authors invested the very words of the original books of Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very word of God without error in all that they teach or imply to include history and science, although they're not written as a scientific manual. So when the Bible says the sun rose, it's not trying to make a scientific statement right because mm -hmm. we know the sun didn't really rise but it uses the same language we use today uh, the bible is thereby the infallible rule and final authority for faith and practice of all believers one of the things you'll hear me say over and over again especially when we talk about inerrancy and, and inspiration the bible is true in all that it affirms the Bible will truly represent even a false statement. The serpent said to Eve, you shall not surely die. That's a lie. However, the Bible told the truth about what... The Bible's not telling us to lie. The Bible's telling us the truth about what Satan said. Does that make sense? <laughs> So when we talk about inerrancy, it's going to be important that we define what an error is and we utilize their view at the time that things are pinned, not ours in Western culture. 
So what was what was acceptable for them? That's where a lot of your uh, dealing with numbers is going to come in, right, Daniel? You probably had a couple of run-ins with numbers that don't match. Yeah. And our Western view is very different than their view was, and we we see that in all other types of Second Temple literature as well, not just this. That's why I say God used the authors. The authors wrote what they were used to. We round numbers to the nearest tens or the nearest, you know, hundreds or something, but they just can use a random number as a round number. They don't. The concept of rounding was just, they're just like, I'm close. My point is not how many there were, you know, but I'm not lying. I'm not saying there was 8,000 dead when there was 16,000. You know, just, I'm just putting a number out there so you get the idea. That's not the point. That's not my emphasis, isn't that? But for us, it's hard for our Western minds to look at. We'll, we'll see that a little bit more. The idea I got here, the Bible quotes a serpent. We talked about that. Paul gives two purposes for the scripture. It's able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And what was the other? That the man of God may be complete, mature. So, in order to get saved, do we need the word? Yep. In order to grow, do we need the word? That's the emphasis, right? So if we're going to grow, if we're going to be saved, we're going to have those things, it's the word. The idea of that is what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. The idea and the sufficiency of Scripture is not that Scripture is all we need for every question under the sun. But it gives us everything we need for that. It gives us everything we need for salvation. It gives us everything we need to be equipped for every good work. Make sense? So... That is Second Timothy three fourteen through four four. We got any other comments or questions in that section? You want to throw out? All of this, although it may not seem like we're following a logical <coughs> path through these scriptures, is nonetheless logical in my mind, which may be less or more helpful for you guys. Next we're going to go to Second Peter one. Verse 16. So, what I note by 2 Timothy 3 is Scripture is the product of inspiration. Scripture is the product. When I come to 2 Peter 1, 16-21, this is the process. You with me? The process of inspiration and the product of inspiration. That's what I'm seeing in those two sections of Scripture. <clears throat> if that makes sense to you, hopefully it does. Second Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's what's Peter saying? What's he telling him? He was actually there. Uh, I'm here. I'm there. And he's going to tell us why that's important in the next couple of verses. He's going to give us the place that he's talking about, which is the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he's going to tell us why that why that matters. But what, what Peter's laying out for us, yeah, I want you guys to know. I want you guys to understand. Uh, this, is not, this is not telephone we're playing. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. And 
I have been called and equipped to write it. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming, because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's saying, I, 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 didn't see, I didn't just see Jesus. I saw Jesus exalted. I saw Jesus the king. Right? You guys with me? Mm-hmm. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic <laughs> glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, remember last time, just as a side note, uh, I told you one of the distinct markings of a prophet is the call of God, the standing in the throne room of God example, uh, like Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3, like Isaiah 6, you remember, uh, Jeremiah from the womb. I would say for the apostles who are going to be writing the words of Christ, this is that moment. Jesus is transfigured before them. They're going to see him and hear from God. What? This is my son. Do what? Listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, what is it that Moses said? There's a prophet coming one day, and when he comes, do what? Listen to him. If you don't listen to him, it'll be required of you. It's bad. It's, in other words, his, he has the words of life. He has it. He's the way. You pitch that. There's nothing else coming. That's it. Don't. Don't lose it. You know, the, the idea. It's that moment in the throne room of God where God is saying, this is my prophet. This is, look, make sure you write down what he says, right? Make sure you know what's going on because he's, this is my son, that witness. Um, so he says, he received honor and glory when, uh, that were born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. For we ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, verse 19 becomes very important then. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What's he saying? He's saying, look, we read about this in the scriptures. And I'm telling you, I was there. I saw it. So you have a prophetic word confirmed by their eyewitness account. That one of the ideas that I see scripturally is that the Old Testament is uh, a writing that was looking for the ending. And the New Testament is the ending. The people of Israel were looking for it. Josephus was, in fact, writing, there's no new scriptures, there's not been a prophet, the word of the Lord's been silent. Why does that all matter? Because when Jesus showed up, you're not going to be able to miss it. He's not going to be lost in a crowd of other prophets. Because <clears throat> there wasn't a crowd of other guys healing lepers, healing the blind, raising the dead, Right? So when you go, I wonder if this is the prophet that Moses was talking about. God's been silent for 400 years, and now there's a guy on the scene. You know, it becomes fairly obvious that, yeah, this is the one. We need to pay attention. We need to, we need to get it. So the prophetic word is more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So that reference, that's what I think he's referring to. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What I want you, if you guys write in your Bibles, or if later on you want to write this in, 
scribble in the word imagination. The idea of this scripture is not that the word of God is not to be interpreted privately by just any old person. It has This verse has been used that way. But what I want you to see is he's saying prophecy does not come from your imagination. <clears throat> it doesn't come from your interpretation of events. <clears throat> you guys tracking with me? And, and he's going to tell us where it comes from, right? So, imagination, I thought, was a good word. It, it is in the Net Bible. I think that's how the Net Bible does it. The N-E-T. <coughs> I don't know how L-E-B does it. I didn't look. I could probably pull it up. But some of the translations can be somewhat confusing because it sounds like it's talking about your interpretation of Scripture. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the writing of prophecy. When prophecy is penned, it doesn't come from men. Who's it come from? That's the point he's getting to. You guys hear what I'm saying? Because verse 21, look at it. Because no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It doesn't come from inside of you. It has its origin with God. But men spoke from God as they were what? Carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is not, the context that we're looking at here, guys, is not saying when we come to Scripture to make an interpretation of what Scripture says, Scripture's not of private interpretation. What it's saying is it doesn't begin in me. Scripture doesn't have its start inside of me. It has its start in God. If I'm a prophet, the word starts with God. It comes through me, but I'm being what? I'm being carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is using me. And he's using me as I am. He's not turning me into something else. He's using me as I am so that I might be able to pen that which God has. And this is what this is what Peter is pointing to. Prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. The process of inspiration is that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God breathed, has its origin in God, and the process of inspiration is what Peter's alluding to here, that that men are carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, that God is utilizing, it doesn't begin in the will of man. In other words, a guy doesn't sit down and think, you know, I thought this thought, I'm going to write it down and decide whether or not that's from God. The guy starts with, the word of the Lord came to me. Here it is. And he puts it down. And that's going to be vital because, guys, when we talk about the New Testament authors, people are going to ask you, well, do they know they're writing Scripture? And I'm going to say, yeah. It's everywhere. All over the New Testament. I got a, I don't know if we'll get into it today, but I've got just a, a smattering of Scriptures where the authors of books are saying, I'm writing Scripture. So when they say, when they use that word, I'm writing scripture, what are they saying? They're saying, this is on par with the Old Testament. <clears throat> Which is kind of a vital thing to understand. So they understand that they're being carried along by the Holy Spirit. They know what's going on. It's not like they became a robot and then all of a sudden there was a book you know, written out for them and they lost all control. God didn't work that way. But, God, but it doesn't stop God from being able to to utilize 
His Holy Spirit to get this done. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So inspiration is a difficult concept because, you know, trying to wrestle with, it's kind of like the foreknowledge of God. You guys remember when we were struggling with the foreknowledge of God and all the crazy places that'll take us? Inspiration's like that. Inspiration's like that. How how is it? Does God still use? Does God allow them to use figures of speech when they write? Well, yeah, you're gonna to have to say yes because they're in there, right? Yeah. So so and he, does he use? What about their own wisdom? Will they will they use sayings like the pillars of the earth? And maybe the, the writer is saying, yeah, that's you know he's talking about the foundations of the world or what have you. But he he has a you know third century. Third millennia BC understanding of of cosmos, but God still uses that to get what He wants. Does that make sense to you guys? In Scripture, He doesn't bypass. He doesn't supercharge their intellect. They didn't all of a sudden know everything because God knows everything, right? But they wrote what they wrote. They did what they did, carried along by the Holy Spirit led by the Holy Spirit, knowing that they're led by the Holy Spirit and that they're pinning something of God. But it doesn't lose their personality. When you read Paul, you know you're reading Paul. When you read Peter, it starts to sound like Peter. You get what I'm saying? So the personality of the writer is not lost. So we want to we, we be able to, to understand that. So <clears throat> this passage has repeated markers showing the genuine prophecy is sourced in God, not people. Peter hammers home the basic message, explicitly and implicitly. One example is how he applies the word carried or born to both the voice he heard from heaven uh, on the holy mountain. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, carried on the heavens, and the way the Spirit uh, uses prophets to deliver God's messages. Men were carried along. Same, same kind of a concept. Uh, the missive is subtle but powerful. In the same way, God's message to us on the mountain was made clear, carried by a supernatural voice. God's message to you is made clear, delivered through men who were carried by His Holy Spirit in the process of crafting the prophetic message. Prophecy does not come from human will. It comes from God. The Word of God is sourced in Him, not in men. Make sense? <coughs> Hopefully. All right, next one. You guys ready for the next one? Sure. I think we can do like six. I don't even have a clock, so I have no idea what time it is. So I was planning on going one, two more at least. How are we doing on time? About eight o'clock. Okay. So next one, First Corinthians 2. Beginning in verse 10. So, remember where we've come from. The product of inspiration is the Holy Scriptures, right? The process, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Are we tracking so far? And 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13, we see that words were taught by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, <clears throat> I'll look at, uh, at verse 6. Uh, yet among the mature, we do not, or I'm sorry, yet among the mature, or the complete, we do impart wisdom, 
although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thought of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Who's writing? Spirit. Paul's talking, right? But what is it that he's saying? He's saying the words I'm using aren't words of men. They're words of the Spirit. How is it that Paul knows the things about God that, 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 that he knows? Because the Spirit of God has revealed it to him, right? The Spirit of God shows him. Because the Spirit of God uh, knows God and, and gives those things. So, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, it's important, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, what a blessing to find the direct answer in the pages of Scripture. Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the church of Corinth, explains in satisfactory detail the source of the message. What was the source of the message? The Spirit of God. Paul presents an intriguing defense of his ministry among the Corinthian believers in chapter 2, along with the defense of his authority as an apostle. Uh, He included similar defenses in the... uh, of the latter throughout the messages for them. It seems that part of the church was vocally challenging his authority and leading other members to be uh, factious or schismatic. Here, he explains that he did not source the content of his teaching. It all came from God, whose wisdom is revealed in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So Paul's saying it's all come from God. Does Paul know he's writing scripture? Seems like, right? All coming from God. Paul said the content of the apostles' teachings revealed to them by the Holy Spirit actually is the thoughts of God. Actually is the depths of God. These can only come from the Spirit of God. No one else can possibly know His thoughts or His depths. Only the Spirit. So the apostles have imparted the thoughts of God in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit. The very words came from God's Spirit. Note that Paul distinguishes carefully between the thoughts of God, the content of his teaching, the spiritual words of the Holy Spirit taught, the form of his teaching, 
The apostolic doctrine is God's thoughts interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual in words taught by God's Spirit. Okay, to say it another way, the Apostles' teaching is from God through the Spirit's ministry, whose revealing and teaching extend even to the choosing of the words that express God's thoughts. It all comes through. Sourced in God comes through the Holy Spirit. Men are moved <coughs> by the Holy Spirit. It's not out of their own imagination even down to the very words and thoughts. They all are sourced from God through His Holy Spirit. Carl Henry says, Inspiration is a supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon divinely chosen agents in consequence of their writings becoming trustworthy and authoritative. So, in the scripture we looked at so far, according to orthodoxy, which is a basic rule of... Uh, of understanding inspiration is this God is the source the words are the product and the Holy Spirit is the agent that delivers from the source of God the, the words through his prophet through his apostles through those who are penning the word of God that kind of helps us hopefully nail down a little bit the idea of inspiration um, John seventeen seventeen. then is the next part God's word is true so that'll <coughs> lead us into inerrancy and we'll probably stop there for the night and we'll take the rest of them next time but uh, oh, does anybody have any questions on that last one sorry or want to make a comment or want to say Jackie's full of beans? That's First Corinthians, not Second Corinthians. I'm going, man, this doesn't make any sense. What Bible are you reading from? Yes, sorry, First Corinthians two. Did I say second? I don't know. I heard second. Sorry. Second. Yeah, First Corinthians two. All right, then John seventeen seventeen, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, he says, "Sanctify them in truth. Your word is." Truth. Is there anywhere in Scripture where God says His Word is true? Yeah, I just read it to you. Sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. Those are words in red, just in case you give extra weight to them. So, uh, this is really where the concept of inerrancy comes from. And by inerrancy, we mean what God or what the Bible affirms is true. The Bible is true in all it affirms. In all that it affirms. It will tell us the truth. It will tell us the truth about slavery. It will tell us the truth about a lot of things people don't like. But it is also true in what it affirms. It says the truth about slavery, but it doesn't necessarily affirm slavery. Does that make sense? It also will tell them how to be how to be good kind to your slaves I'll take care of slaves it affirms that kindness so inerrancy is a view that when all the facts become known they will demonstrate that the bible in its original autographs and correctly interpreted is entirely true never false in all it affirms 
whether that relates to doctrine, ethics, social, physical, or life sciences. The life is in the blood. That was true, even when we bled out our first president, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, this is where I just wanted you to take a look at the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. There's a lot of issues when it comes to inerrancy, so when we talk about inerrancy, we're always talking about the original autographs. Most of inspiration, everything's going to refer to the original autographs. Do we have those? No. No. We don't have the originals. I would not imagine we'd ever find them. Uh, in accordance with how God does a lot of things, I think if we had them, we would worship them, so you don't have them. But you do have the things the original autograph said in the scripture laying out before us. We know that when we take a look at the transmission of the text uh, and, and the breadth, the width of the copy of the of it. So when we look at that, we'll look at that a little bit later, but when we look at it, what we'll understand is even what, what Barterman affirms, and Barterman is not a believer, but when asked, what did the original autograph say? He said, pretty much what you have in front of you right now. So we can, we can make that affirmation that, yeah, we don't have the copy, the original copy, but we have what they wrote. We have it, and we have the ability to discern where there are differences, um, what was original and what wasn't, because we have so many copies. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we, when we wrestle with it. But the Chicago Statement, I don't remember which, which all things I have in here, but you guys have not the whole thing, but not the short thing either. So the whole one even gets more, but it has the different articles, so you can kind of peruse through it next time if you want to discuss some of those ideas that it talks about, we can do that. Um, but here's a few of those statements. God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired the Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. That's part one. Second point, Holy <coughs> Scripture being God's own word written by man, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our mind to understand its meaning. Being holy and verbally God-given, that's the same thing, by the way, as verbal plenary inspiration. Plenary just means all, and verbal means words. So all the words, not just the ones in red, everything. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error, or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded, 
or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. So if we leave those ideals of inerrancy, but we want to understand it in its terms, okay? That's what we talked about before. We don't want to understand it in our terms. We want to understand it in its. And so I've, there's several notes that I put here. There's more <clears throat> that you can read. But Was this <clears throat> written because of a certain heresy or something going on at... The Chicago Statement of Inerrancy? Yeah, why was it? Yeah, so there was a... Uh, the dates are probably in there, but this this is uh, uh, 1970s in the 70s. There is a um, liberal movement through the church to deny the uh, inspired and infallible and inerrant word of God. And so several churches banded together and worked out probably the last real church council. I want to say it was all Southern Baptists, I think, but they sat down. Um, if you do a search on it, I'm sure that Wikipedia has all the numbers of who showed up and who was there. And they defined what has become the standard statement of faith in regard to the scripture for evangelical Christianity. Uh, I don't know of splinter groups if they would hold to it or not but I would say it's it's orthodox among Baptists, Southern Baptists probably Assemblies of God I would think most people that would consider themselves evangelical would hold to this view. So because there was a swing in churches to deny the word which is not really lessened but they developed the statement so that churches could say we hold to the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy mm -hmm. is what we believe. So they could make it. And with a simple statement, say what they were trying to, to do better. So is this something similar, forgive me for my ignorance, but uh, something like the Council of Nicaea where they had to come together? Yeah, similar, but not uh, the Council of Nicaea and third, fourth uh, centuries were dealing with really the beginnings of the Catholic church okay. and so and just like with that it is a gathering of the churches to deal with heresy and and that's how the church really worked out what is orthodox what is what does the bible teach we're struggling with the deity of christ so the church would come together and make a statement about the deity of christ which we would come to know as the apostles creed or as right. uh, uh the chalcedonian creed or whatever different creeds came through so this is the closest thing we have to that in the modern era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So obviously the ones who gathered were ones who believed in inerrancy. The ones who didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't show up. that makes sense? And some of the earlier uh, dealings with heretics to the church's shame, sometimes those church councils were opportunities to burn the guys who didn't agree with you at the stake. So that's not so good. They weren't always they weren't always godly if that makes sense. And you know, one of the things we have to realize as we work our way through or consider church history and the development of canon and the and the origin of scripture is that God is using uh, frail, broken vessels right. to deliver 
infallible, perfect words. And so it should look like that. It should, it should look like, because that's how we are, you know. And I think that, you know, in God's uh, sovereignty, he gets to pick how he wants to do it. And that's how he chose. He chose to use us. He chose to use, you know, frail vessels that, that are, um, that are, I was trying to think of a good word. I want to keep saying faulty, but I don't mean faulty. But anyway, that that uh, you know, we we are dumb. We do dumb stuff. Maybe we think we're doing it for the right reasons, but you know, burning the guys who disagree with you is probably not the best way to solve problems because it ends up going both ways. Sometimes you're burning the guy who was right, and you go, oh, you know, Oops, sorry, <laughs> sorry, we burned a good guy that time. Did they burn anyone? Chicago. Not in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago burned, but that was earlier. Yeah. That was earlier. What, 68? <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> so what, what I like um, is in John 17, Jesus tells us his own attitude towards Scripture. And then my question would be, should ours be less? Should our view of Scripture be less than what Jesus' view was? Yeah. So Jesus said, your word is truth. Mm-hmm. So then, I think that should be our attitude. Same way when I, when I look at uh, uh, Mormons who want to say, and, you know, and as much as it's translated correctly, you know, the words not we, we've lost it or whatever. Well, that's not what Jesus said. So I'm gonna I'm gonna line up on Jesus' side. He said it's all gonna make it. Mm-hmm. Everything that God wants, He's gonna deliver. Everything that. So there's no, you know, the question comes up, well, well, are there books that should be canonized that aren't? No, you got them. That's it. Jesus said not one jot or tittle will pass away until all things have been fulfilled. So God's going to deliver his word. He got it to us. And he used us. He didn't use a copy machine before a copy machine existed, right? He used men who were not perfect in their copying, but there are so many copies, we can find the mistakes. Praise God. And because we can find the mistakes, it doesn't mean, oh, because they're, we can find the mistakes. It means, no, because we can find the mistakes, we can point to the true. So we can go, oh, look, we can, I can see what happened. I can see where, where he copied two, two lines, you know what I mean, where he skipped a line. I can see it. I know what happened. Because there's so many copies, the width of the, the transmission of the text helps us know, yeah, we got it. We got what God intended us to have. Not the Gospel of Thomas. He didn't intend us to have that. We can read it, but it's a dumb gospel. And it's, you know, I'm pretty sure the Gospel of Thomas is the one where Jesus kills a kid. Later on, he brings him back to life. And in the end, he turns, he says or states that Women have to become men in order to be holy. I think that's how it ends. So, just so you know, that's not the fingerprints of God. Right? It's not hard to go, do I see inspiration here? No. Do I see the fingerprints of goofy men? Yeah, that's all over it. I mean, it, it just, 
when you put scripture next to that which is not scripture, it is becomes obvious. Now, why has it become so obvious to me and the world can't see it? Well, that's simple because it's spiritually discerned and the world doesn't have a spirit. They don't care. You know, they're, they, they judge it in a different way. But that, isn't that what the word said to us? It says, these things were are written by the spirit, carried along by the spirit. The spirit is the force that leads us to it. And the spirit is the one that opens our eyes to it. And it becomes very easy for me to see. So, you know, sometimes the struggle is, I don't understand why they don't see it. You know, why they want to clamor. But it goes back to the second point, right? God's general revelation, mankind's natural disposition is to rebel against that. So, that's part of our natural bend. Uh, it was argued that all the words of the Bible are God's words, therefore... To disbelieve or disobey any word in Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. It was argued further that the Bible clearly teaches that God cannot lie or speak falsely. Therefore, all the words in Scripture are claimed to be completely true and without error in any part. God's words are, in fact, the ultimate standard of truth. Again, keep in mind, I, I, I want to temper that by saying in all that it affirms. Well, the Bible will tell us lies that people said that... It's telling us the truth about what they said. You guys are tracking with me okay? So hopefully that... <clears throat> I don't want to lose you in that. Through, or though error, and at least parcel falsehood may characterize the speech of every human being, it is the characteristic of God's speech, even when spoken through sinful human beings, that it is never false, and that it never affirms error. God is not a man that he should lie, or the Son of Man, that he should repent. That's Numbers 23, and it was spoken by Balaam. Who, by the way, was a mess. But he got it right. Because the words he's speaking are sourced in God. He's carried along by the Holy Spirit, and that's what he's affirming when he says that. So the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So let's look at some of the, the arguments that may come up about it. The Bible can be inerrant and still speak in ordinary language of everyday speech. In other words, the Bible can say the sun rises. We should not think that the Bible is speaking about cosmology when it says that. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, a reporter can say 8,000 men were killed in a certain battle without thereby implying that he was counting everyone and that there <clears throat> were not 7,999 or 8,001 dead soldiers. If roughly 8,000 died, it would, uh, uh, it would of course be false to say that 16,000 died, but... It would not be false in most contexts for a reporter to say 8,000 men died when in fact there were 7,823. The limit of truthfulness would depend on the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by the original hearers. So to understand that, that's the value of reading Second Temple uh, um writings so you can understand how did they write how did they think and then when you and, and earlier you know you can read earlier things it wasn't uncommon for those issues of numbers to come up that was how they wrote so when we see the old testament doing the same thing we shouldn't go what 
They didn't write with the same accuracy that we write with today. No, they wrote with what they wrote with in those days. They wrote with what you would have read in Babylonian writings, what you would have seen in Akkadian writings, what you would have seen in those ancient texts. They, because that was normal for them, right? It wasn't. It wasn't an attempt to be false. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times when we run into those <coughs> issues with numbers, that's what we have to understand. They they didn't see that the same way we see it today. Are a lot of these numbers are copious errors. Probably not. They're probably just the utilizing the. I'm, I won't say none of them. Some can be, but um, uh, but only where we see that in the transmission. So in other words, I can't assume it's a copyist error unless I look at manuscript evidence that shows. Well, this guy says this, and this guy says that. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Then I can say, well, it's a copyist error, or it could be a copyist error mistake. Um, and then I have to weigh the documents and decide which one's right. You know, based on which one has seems to be more correct. Right? If if this one doesn't have any other errors, but that is different, I might put more weight on that document. If that makes sense. So, but. What we want to understand is that when we look at it, it would comport with the the use of reporting numbers of dead, uh, size of army, uh, to their time. So in their time, if however they rounded, however they figured numbers, it didn't have the value that we have. When we see numbers, we think... Well, in order for this to be true, that number has to be right. For them, that number just has to be close. Because that's the writings of that. So you would have to take, like from the Old Testament, you would have to take writings, not scriptural writings, writings from the the, uh, culture on either side and say, how did they use numbers? And you look at it and you go, yeah, they, they use numbers are all over the place. Sometimes greatly exaggerated. That's weird. And what do we learn from that? We learn culturally they didn't put the same weight on numbers that we put on. That wasn't they didn't have the same purpose. So when we come to the Bible and we look at those areas where we may struggle with years or 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 gaps or we don't understand how we got from here to there, is it four hundred years? Is it four hundred and thirty? What is it? How's it work out? Well their 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 point was to get you close wasn't to get you it wasn't being written as a scientific document to give exact measurements you know what I'm saying uh, when we, uh, for example the, the next one measurements also in order to be true should conform to the degree of precision implied by the speaker and expected by the hearers in the original context it should not trouble us then to affirm both that the Bible is truthful in everything it says and that it uses ordinary language to describe natural phenomenon or to give approximations around numbers when those are appropriate in the context. So when it does that, we just have to understand that it is it is God speaking and using men. And men are going to use the, the methods that they use. If the Bible was written in the 21st century, it wouldn't be different. Because we would use the message or the things that we the way we speak culturally if it and in a thousand years from now people reading it would not be able to apply uh, 
what they use a thousand years from now, they would have to understand our cultural context to say, well, this is what is meant by the numbers. This is what is meant by the measurements. They were really precise, so they'd get right down to the thousandth of an inch. Or, eh, they're not, they really, they're just going to be close. They're, and they're going to round it differently than we round it. That's why they, my numbers would all have zeros. I never do, when Kathy says, how much does that cost? I'll say a hundred bucks. You don't really know if that's 199 or 99.99. It depends. And, and in the context between me and my wife, she knows what I mean. She knows if it's something I want, it could be 199. And or if not, it could be 99. And so she can ask those questions to get those answers, but if I give her that, she's got a basic idea of what I'm talking about. And that is She's never come to me and said, you're lying. It was 199. She said, she just knows that's that's how I run numbers. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. And it's just, we, so the point of it using normal language is we should understand that. Rather than putting in our degree of precision, we have to understand theirs when we come to numbers, dates, and those kind of things. Yeah, I don't know if you have it addressed in here to quotations. Are the same way we when we quote things and people and times nowadays we're very precise it was this person that said this and they said it with these exact same words but culturally back then it, they you made get the basic idea yeah that was a quotation yeah so there's there's places in the bible where someone's quoting somebody else but they're attributing to somebody who didn't actually say those words or in that way yeah right so mm -hmm. yeah. i don't know if that's one of the other no nope, uh, yeah it's next oh okay sorry it's okay that's perfect <laughs> the bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations oh there you go <laughs> so <clears throat> written Greek at the time of the New Testament had no quotation marks or equivalent kinds of punctuation and an accurate citation of another person needed to include only a correct representation of the content didn't have to have every word of what the person said rather rather like an indirect quote uh, it was not expected to cite each word exactly. Thus, inerrancy is consistent with loose or free quotations of the Old Testament or the words of Jesus, for example, so long as the content is not false in what was originally stated. When you look at, you're going to see that in Matthew, when Matthew deals with, uh, and Muslims will bring this up, right? When we talk about the difference between Matthew and Mark and Jairus' daughter. And the point is, you know, even, even, you know, even their view of the Quran, uh, um, they they don't attach this same expectancy to it as they do to um, the Bible, because that'd be ridiculous. We just are gonna those they don't get judged the same way. They don't use what is it? James White always says they don't use equal weights. You know they don't they don't do it the same both ways. James White does. They don't. You know, he's always calling them on that in the various debates that he has. But the idea is, it's it really goes along the same line. So, the, in in their world, as it was written, it's not like reading a newspaper and you go, they got that quote wrong, or they pulled that quote out quote out of context. That was an issue for them. The issue for them was, I just get the basic content across to you, and you know what I'm talking about, and. 
God, God, his stamp is upon that because he says, they're my words and they're right. So, so God didn't change his measure of inerrancy for their cultural use of quotations. He just said, yeah, it's, it's right. And you guys don't need to be so knuckleheadish about it. You know what he's saying. Well, it's not so much us. It's the people that we might be talking to, sure. witnessing, say, hey, you got a discrepancy here. And, and but all you can do is you, is you lay it out to them the same way that you would answer that discrepancy with a, with a Muslim or somebody else. Just because uh, our, maybe our work is a little harder, we still have an answer. Sure. And, and they can still deny that answer. The point in overall in our being able to share that with them and talk to them is always to pray that God opens up the eyes. Because if God doesn't open the eyes, they're not ever going to see. True. You know, that God grants it to them repentance. I mean, there's still areas in my life where where I still run pretty close to Calvin. And some of those are that idea that, that I need I need God to to part the veil, if you will. I need I want God to to grant unto them repentance, for lack of a better term. I want God to uh, open up the eyes of their understanding so that they can see. Because the natural state of man is going to be to deny it all. Yeah. To look for a reason not to believe. And once I've got a reason not to believe, I'll just hold to that reason not to believe. Even though you may give me a, a, an adequate answer that would, would appease me in anything else. If we're... If I said, why in the world is this pizza $10 and that piece is $8 and they're the same and, and then you give me an answer and I go, oh, okay. Because what? Oh, it's not really a spiritual truth and I'll accept that answer because I, I'll, I'll deem it reasonable. But when I come to scripture now, I have a tendency to be ir unreasonable, right? Most people we talk to, aren't don't they seem unreasonable? And they're emotion and their outbursts and their wrath against scripture it seems why well, you you're a little tense you know what's why are we so emotional about this let me explain to you how that works and, and they would accept that in in the study of any other literature all other literature they would they would accept that they just don't want to accept it for the bible well why not because they don't want to accept the bible right that makes sense yep so I, I acknowledge it, in my in my mind it would be easier if God would have done it a different way, but He didn't. This is the way He did it. So this is how we look at it. We say, yeah, it's not at the, in those times at that time and period when it's written in the fifties, AD fifty. Quotations didn't mean what they mean now. You just had to get it general. Do you understand what Jesus is doing here at Jairus's daughter? Oh yeah, what's He doing? Raising her from the dead. Yeah. Can we, can we can we comprehend the point of the story both ways? Sure can. But I want to point to a discrepancy and say, well, that's not the same. I would argue that it is in according to their standards. It is the same. And one is obviously microscopic and one is telescopic. One is giving us a, a wide angle view and one is giving us a narrow angle view but they're still telling us the same story it, the, 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 the discrepancy would be Jairus' daughter died and was buried 
Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. Whoa! Something cannot be both true and false at the same time. So that's the kind of discrepancy we're looking at. But the stuff that most people will will peck on isn't that. Right. So if there's a reasonable explanation, and really that's the question we should ask. Well, if I give you a reasonable explanation for that, would you believe it? How would they answer that question? Well, yes, I will. Of course. Yeah. This is what stopped Maybe. I don't know. Or they say, no, I don't care what you tell me. You know, which both show the condition of a heart that needs to be penetrated by the Spirit of God, right? Which is why I think it's important to have, you know, to have multiple, more than one person in a, in a place like that. Because you have people praying while someone's trying to share so that the person sharing has clarity, so that the person hearing has, a, has their heart softened. I mean, there's a lot of important aspects that I think. And even Jesus, right? When he sent him out, how do you do it? Two by two. Right. So there's... Well, I can see it in people's faces mm-hmm. when I give the same message to different people. The ones that receive it or think about it are the ones that just kind of brush it off. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, why is Bart Ehrman still an, an unbeliever? Because he don't care. How can you sit in a, in a radio interview with atheists, and wasn't with Christians, and declare that the original autographs say basically what the Bible says now, and then still say, I can't believe because there's so many contradictions? You just contradict yourself. Don't you? I mean, it sounds contradictory to me. But in the end, what is it that holds Bart Ehrman away? He's got that beach ball pressed under the water and a hard heart. And, you know, honestly, the only way I know to penetrate a hard heart is if God does it. I don't think there's a magic word we have. So I think it's that's where the value is to be praying that God soften a heart. Because, like, the seed ministry, the rock in the shoe, all that stuff goes back to that idea. If I can put something in them that bugs them enough that they keep coming back to it, you know, maybe that's that's the the thing God's going to use to soften. Who knows? You may find the craziest ones that scream the loudest at you in heaven when we get there and go, wow. I'm pretty sure you're going straight to hell. But God to say, oh, no. yeah." So, inerrancy is consistent with loose or free quotations of the Old Testament or in the words of Jesus, for example. So long as the content is not false to what was originally stated. The original writer did not ordinarily imply that he was using exact words of the speaker and only those. Nor did the original hearers expect verbatim quotation. That's why. You're, you're importing a requirement into a document that didn't have that requirement when it was made. Make sense? Um, it is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. So fishermen wrote like fishermen. Intelligent people wrote like intelligent people. That's why, that's why we have to say that inspiration is not quotation if it was quotation we would probably expect everything to be perfect right but God didn't use that God didn't quote to you there are times where God says to the prophet write this thus saith the Lord I think that's probably 
quotation. But when we look at a narrative, and we're we're reading a narrative that that wasn't normal. And because when we go into the text, I can read bad grammar. So it can't be dictation. It can't be God took control of their body and they all wrote like robots because then it would always sound the same. You wouldn't hear the different voices. You wouldn't see the differences in authors. But you do see the differences in authors. So God used men. That's not uncommon because we see God do that all the way through history, right? God used Moses. Was he perfect? Did he do everything right? Did he ever screw up? What about Abraham? Did he ever lie? What about David? Did he ever sleep with women who weren't his wife and commit murder? But God used them and called them men after my own heart. God utilized them as heroes of the faith, even though they weren't perfect. And so I would expect then inspiration and energy to work the same way. God still uses us in our weird little failures to accomplish what his goal is, to get the message across. And really makes it a lot easier for us to understand when we consider that. We go, oh yeah, well, look at there. It's, it's just as dumb as I am. You know, John wasn't nothing special. He writes like a fisherman. Peter, he can't put a sentence. He writes sentences without subjects. Everybody learned in English, you can't have a sentence without a subject. Well, nobody told Peter. So the point being, bad grammar, unusual construction, created words. Paul's famous for that. Just like we looked at for Theos Nustos, that he makes up a word. He says, it's this. And then 2,000 years later, we go, I hope we can define that by breaking it in half and saying what the two words mean. Because you're not going to look it up in a dictionary. <laughs> They're not there. We do the same thing all the time. Huh? We, <clears throat> we do the same thing all the time. Sure. Mm -hmm. yep. We create language, don't we? Um, so failure to follow commonly accepted rules of grammatical expression, plural verbs and singular verbs and feminine adjectives where a masculine one should be, that's just a sign that it was written by people. But God uses God, the Holy Spirit. He still is breathing His, the very words He wants. That's how He wants it. He wants it to sound like them. He wants it to look like them. That's what he picks. That's how he gets it. These stylistic or grammatical irregular statements, which are especially found in the book of Revelation, which is the worst of them all. Lord have mercy. But I digress. Should not trouble us, for they do not affect the truthfulness of the statements under consideration. A statement can be ungrammatical, but still true. Might not say it the way you should have in English, or in this case, Greek, but we still understand what it says. Even you, you guys seen those things on Facebook where they scramble the letters? Mm -hmm. As long yeah. as the first and last one's right, you can still yeah. read it. Mm -hmm. It's not right, but I understand what it says. I can, I get the message. Make sense? So, so when we when we wrestle with the idea of inerrancy, it's important that we get those things. In our minds, that we understand that, and we that we we are 
it's a little bit fluid. Uh, Michael Heiser, um, who is a uh, Hebrew scholar, uh, he does a podcast called The Naked Bible. He is constantly bringing these things up and and that people want to point to and say, well, the, the cosmology in this statement is erroneous. This is a fancy way of saying he's he's using his view of the universe in the second century BC instead of ours. But it doesn't matter. That's who he was. He wasn't intending to define our cosmology. It wasn't the part. He used that in in the poetry to to teach us what he was trying to say about God. But it's it's still using his personality and his understanding, right? to deliver to us the message is still right. It wasn't trying to define for us, you know, the proper order of the planets in the universe or whatever, you know, however we might be be looking at it. And still in that, God is able to say to us that the earth is a sphere and that it hangs on nothing and that it, you know, all these things which would have probably been different than the cosmology of their time that God delivers through his word that we can understand. So hopefully it helps us to kind of define a little bit what we're looking for and what we want to understand from the concepts of inspiration and inerrancy. And we'll broach the idea of canon next. So we'll look at New Testament, Old Testament canon, and then we'll we'll get a little deeper into some of those things. But, But feel free to go ahead and look at the notes. If you don't have them, Ezra, they're online, so you can download them. I just bring them. Okay. So, and then you can read them ahead of time and say, oh, I don't understand this. And we can feel free to discuss that stuff too. Okay. I, I have a, a minor question. <clears throat> I sure guess it's, it's somewhat unrelated, unrelated. But I noticed in different versions they use different words. Uh-huh. In other words, in Jeremiah 43, 13, they use Helopolis which I assume is the name of the city. Okay. And the New King James uses uh, Beshema, Beshemesh. Uh-huh. Why the... The difference? The, the big difference. So the big differences occur when the translators know what that city became known as, and, and so they will drop the, the name that's there and give the name that it's commonly understood as rather than the name that was listed. In other words, let's say, what was the first name? Uh, can't pronounce it. Okay, so let's Heliopolis. say Heliopolis is uh, is what the city becomes. It's a Greek word. Uh, so this becomes the name of the city and that's the way it's more commonly known today. So rather than writing Bet Shemesh, which is Hebrew, right. uh, they go with the, the, the Greek, Greek name of the more common city. Okay. So it's the same place, same city, but right, the city's right. names change. So the, the, there's one that does it in Genesis. It's Luz. Uh, where, what was it you remember, Daniel? You know what I'm talking about? The gate at uh, uh, going to Damascus that Abraham walks through in that city. They use they use a, uh, they use a different name. So they they change the name of the city. It's still the same place, but they they use a, a name of a city by the name it's more well known as. For example, let's say this is not true, but obviously I'm trying to give an example. Let's say. 
once upon a time, Los Angeles was known, you know, 2,000 years ago as Santa Cruz. And so in order for you to understand, as you're reading it, that they're not talking about Santa Cruz, which is a different place now, they're saying, well, no, what they're, they're talking about Los Angeles. But it was back then called Santa Cruz. So they give Los Angeles, so you get the geographical area rather than the name that is there. So it's a, it is a, it is a response by translators to decide, do I want that person reading this to know where we're talking about, or do I want them to just have a hard name to say? And so some translators say, oh, I'm going to put the name it's supposed to be. And other translators say, no, I want them to understand the geographical area, so they give you the new name. So somebody without logo software, how the heck do you figure that? How do you commentary? Probably. Okay. I, I'm shy of a commentary. How would you know? Oh. You'd have to be a student willing to set up uh, maps, geographical maps of areas that would give you names of cities through the ages. Because when a new, just like uh, Constantinople, right. you know. And now Constantinople is Istanbul. Mm -hmm. And then before it was Constantinople, it was something else. So, you know, you, you'd have to have maps that would give you the names that cities had before different rulers came in and changed them. And then, and, and then so sometimes when the Bible is referring to one, that's why they do that, so that you can, so that you can find it. So they'll change the place name to a name that you can find on a map instead of a name that you're going to say, where in the world yeah. is this place? So that's the... And so not every translational choice is helpful, but that's why it's helpful to study with multiple translations because we can, usually if we use multiple translations in our study... Well, that's how I we come across say, those, but half said one and half said Half the said other. another. Yeah, so it depends. And really... The funny thing is, most translations are going to be divided into two parts. Texas Receptus, or New King James, mm -hmm. and then everybody else. NIV, NASB, ESV, most of those are utilizing the same texts, and they will have a tendency to make the same choices that Westcott and Hort made when they made the translation. So, well, that's a short answer to it. So, you know, to know those things, and to say, well, what... You know, hopefully people that run into that are going to ask somebody who, who says, I don't know, let's find out. Or somebody who knows the answer so that they can show them. And then, you know, I don't think it's unhelpful to have those things. Atlases, Bible, I got like, not even, not just talking in logos, I mean actual Bible atlas books. Mm -hmm. So that, because I get confused all the time on where in the world is this and are we going south or north and... Right. East and well, I don't understand, and so that's why I, I bought about every map I could buy when we were in Israel because I want to, I want, I want to be able to put those up around the church. So when we sit down and have a Bible study, we can go look. Here's, and then we can understand the history of that place. That when Babylon took over, they changed the name, right. or when you know Greece took over, they changed the name to this, or when Rome took over, they changed the name to that. But we are all meaning the same place. So that's why those gotcha. things change. 
Okay. I hope that's helpful. Did I steal that from you? No, it's yours. I don't know where I got it. I'm like, I have a highlighter? I don't remember a highlighter. <laughs> Everybody good? Yeah.